Thank you. Good seeing you this morning. Let's take our Bibles and open them to Matthew's Gospel. We are looking at chapter 13 and verses 1 through 23 this morning as we continue in our series on a haunted faith and just addressing a number of issues through uh, that have arisen in my ministry experience, pastoral experience, things that uh, people have struggled with, thoughts that have haunted individuals in their faith journey once they uh, endure some hardship or trial in life and it has uh, raised questions and doubts. And so we're dealing with uh, a myriad issues that uh, would arise naturally in our faith experience and hopefully, hopefully bringing some, uh, uh, some sense of security and resolve to these issues as we deal with them in our lives. And so we want to look at Matthew chapter 13 in verses 1 through 23. I think we all realize in life that in the doing of anything that matters, anything of substance in our life that we enter into, there, there's always going to be um, certain expectations. We, we just understand that. If you're going to be uh, a college student and you study and you prepare and even pay for courses perhaps on uh, the standardized test for the ACT and the SAT because you want to attain a certain score so you get into a certain university and you study and you prepare. Some places will even require you to write an essay uh, or maybe to have a personal in interview and you go through that uh, what can be a rigorous process at some institutions and, and uh, you're accepted to the university. Well, that doesn't mean, obviously, that your academic objectives have been met, that because you've now been accepted as a student that we now hand you a degree. No, that's, uh, that, that's not meeting expectations. The expectation is that now that you're a student, now that you're enrolled, you're going to attend class. You're going to listen le to lectures. Uh, you're going to study. You're going to do everything that is required of you uh, on the syllabus. And you're going to do that for a certain span of, of time, for a certain number of years. And then at the end of that, it will culminate, if you have done it to a satisfactory degree, it will culminate, it will consummate in you being uh, awarded. A, a degree. And so we just know there's certain expectations in, in academic life. But what about something like marriage that we enter into? I don't think any of us, well, most of us, I don't think we're so naive as to think that because you have some wonderfully photographic moment or some video from just the right angle that shows your shock and amazement at the proposal of your boyfriend and the asking for your hand in marriage, I don't think any of us are naive enough to think that that staged event somehow makes for a rewarding marriage. Nor does some over-the-top wedding make for a marriage as God would design it to be. In fact, uh, the data has been compiled that reveals that those who spend the most for a wedding have the highest rate of divorce. And so we enter into marriage hopefully realizing there, that there are certain expectations that if my marriage is not just going to survive and it's not designed just to be a survival of the fittest, if marriage is actually going to be rewarding, if it's going to be fulfilling, if it's going to be what God has designed marriage to be, I know there's certain expectations. I know that we each one have to have shared values. 
Uh, we have to have the same foundation in life, the same core values. We have to each one practice sacrifice uh, uh, in our lives. We can't demand our, our, our own rights. You have, to be, uh, you have to be willing to make a great many compromises and sacrifices, and you have to be willing to overlook a great many things. And then once we can fulfill those expectations, marriage is, is rewarding. But what, what about a job? I mean, you hit a home run in the interview. There were a number of candidates, but you hit the home run in the interview, and they send you down to HR to fill out all the paperwork to become an employee. And just because you're hired to do the job doesn't mean the job has now been done. No, there's certain expectations of you. There's expectations that, that you show up at an appointed time. And just doing that is not sufficient to, to really rise in, in, your, in your career. I mean, they're, they're, unfortunately, we, we've become a culture of the least common denominator that, that thinking just showing up on time is something commendable. You know, one of the things we tell our Texas Tech players who have a great many meetings that if you just show up on time to a meeting, you're late. You show up on time for your workout, you're late. But there's, there's a great many in, in the workforce today who think it's commendable just slipping under the wire and showing up on time. Listen, we as followers of Christ are not called to just settle in with the least common denominator. If you really want to stand out as a follower of Christ in the workplace, they're early. Act like you're interested. Act like you're vested in the mission and the outcome of, of, the, of the particular organization of, of which you're a part. Now, we know, we know that certain expectations have to be met in the workplace if you're going to be a valued employee. Well, the life of faith is no different. Unfortunately, I think with our emphasis, and rightly so, that salvation is by grace through faith. And again, I say rightly so, that salvation is a work of God. But our, our emphasis upon salvation being by grace through faith, rightly so. We have put so much emphasis on salvation by grace through faith that wrongly so, there are no expectations of us who would be the people of God and unfortunately I've noticed through the years of pastoral experience that those who are haunted by these suspicions that that there are expectations of the life of faith that I've missed out on oftentimes or the overwhelming majority of times it's those who have grown up in church that somehow have been led down a delusional path that uh, because at some point point in your church involvement as a child growing up as long as you professed faith as long as you uh, you know as soon as you came down uh, an aisle so to speak and you you confess faith you filled out some necessary paperwork and we baptized you that now then you don't ever have to give thought to salvation again there are many people that think that way but as they grow and as they seek to stay involved they start to have these haunting suspicions that there is more expected. That as a follower of Christ, as someone who has been called by him, saved, yes, by the grace of God through faith, that having been called by him, that there are certain expectations of my life as to how I 
should live. That if I have heard the word, if I have received the word, that now then that is going to consummate in being reflected, that's going to be manifested in the life that I'm now seeking to live. Well, our passage this morning, if you've already looked, is the parable of the sower. And this parable of the sower, this parable that Jesus tells, comes on the heels of a rebuke that he has given to the the Pharisees and the scribes. They've come to Jesus once again asking for a sign. And he he has said to them that there will be no sign but the sign of Jonah, which is the resurrection. I'm not going to jump through the hoops you've put out in front of me. What will validate and give credibility to my ministry ultimately is the resurrection that is to come. But on the, at the conclusion of that, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter when he says here in, in verse 49 of chapter 12, and extending his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my mother. Now, describing his followers, describing his followers as those who who do the will of God, Jesus then proceeds to offer forth the parable of a sower. The parable of the sower is a, a parable that distinguishes the difference between those who have heard the word, those that have received the word, those who are seeking to pursue the expectations that God would have of them, and in contrast to those who are just vaguely interested in matters of religion, who give the appearance of reception of the gospel message, who, but who in the end of the day were just vaguely interested in things of the Spirit. And so in this passage, Jesus is offering four different analogies here. And what I would bring our attention to is that there is a startling recognition in these passages. As Jesus does does this comparison of of the four soils, where the seed, the gospel seed is planted, there is a startling recognition of all four of these in the life of the church, especially the Western church, the church in the Western hemisphere. But I want us to look at these comparisons that that Jesus offers forth here. He begins, the first analogy begins in verse 3, and he told them many things in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, And the birds came and ate them. Now he gives greater detail over in verse 19 where he says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one sown with seed beside the road. This is describing an individual that has no interest in the things of God. These are individuals for, for whom God's Spirit, there, there is just no, their, their eyes glaze over when it comes to the things of God. And these type of individuals are individuals even in the life of the church that are coaxed here. They're bullied into coming to church. They're demanded to come here by their parents, their children, uh, teenagers that are forced to come to church sometimes by, by their parents or, or it's adults who are, who are uh, manipulated and guilted into coming to church by a spouse. But they sit 
and they're disinterested. There is no interest whatsoever in the things of God. So anything that is preached, anything that is proclaimed, it's just, it's just seed that falls to the side of the road. It never connects. And then the second analogy he offers here is in verse 5 and, and 6. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil. And they sprang up immediately because they had no depth of soil. But after the sun rose, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they, they withered away. And he describes it further in verse 20 and 21. The one sown with seed on the rocky places, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. It was something emotional. It was something that, that touched the heart, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution occurs because of the word, immediately he falls away. This type of person is always looking for the pep rally. They're always looking for that which evokes an emotional experience. And they will hop and they will hop and they will hop from here to here to here because they got to keep having dancing bears to stay interested. They have to continually be entertained if you're going to be able to keep them for any length of time. These are the ones that go up, we all know them, they go up like a rocket with excitement at the beginning of the faith, supposed faith journey, but they come down like a rock. But the third group that Jesus describes here is the one that is perhaps most prevalent in the Western church today. Beginning in verse 7, he says, Others fell among the, thorn, among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. Verse 22 and the one sown with seed among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, and the anxiety of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So there was no lacking of soil. Initially, it gave the appearance of, of taking root in that person's life, that this really was who they are. This is what identified them. But the busyness of life, the opportunities for, for upward movement in their career, or, or those who, like Demas, that love this present world more, who forsook their calling because they love this present world more, the, the world eventually pulls them away. But here's the fourth and final description. This is the one that hears the word, receives the word, and begins pursuing the expectations that God would have for this person. But others fell, verse 8, but others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop. Some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty times as much. And he says essentially the same thing about this in verse 23. But the, ones, but the one sown with seed on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty times as much. These then, Jesus says, are, are the disciples. These are the true disciples. These are my true followers. These are the ones who, who hear the word. They understand the word they apply it to their life they seek to live it out and as a result it consummates it completes itself in the manifestation of good it bears fruit and so the parable of the soil is a is a very insightful parable in that here we are able to see the expectations 
what it is that Jesus expects from those who hear his word and understand his word and have received it gladly. The first thing that Jesus expects as we begin looking at some of the other verses now that are between the, the original, the initial verses and the explanatory verses, in between we are given a glimpse of the expectations. And the first expectation that Jesus has is one of, conver- of concentration. Jesus expects of us who are his disciples, who are his followers, he expects concentration. Concentration in the things of God. Now, notice he says here in verse 13, he's describing to his disciples why he has been speaking to others in parables. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In other words, I'm telling parables to try to capture attention. These people have heard religion for so long, false religion that I'm trying to use stories, I'm trying to use metaphors, analogies, because when you use these these forms of speech, these forms of grammatical speech, it requires paying attention. When when you're telling a story, those to whom you speak have got to pay attention. There's details that, that that you can't miss out on if you're going to understand the gist of the story. And so when Jesus is teaching the concepts of the kingdom, the principles of the kingdom of God, he is utilizing and he's teaching in a way that the people have never heard it before, as one having authority, as it says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking in a way that is capturing their attention, using these stories, metaphors, and analogies. You're forced to listen. Because what has been lacking is is concentration. They're not putting their minds on the things of God. And listen, church, if there is going to be growth and maturity in your discipleship, and we're learners, so we understand being a student, being a learner, it it requires concentration. When you're reading or you're studying and it's some material that, that is new, it requires concentration and focus. And if we're going to grow and mature in faith in our discipleship, it will not occur apart from the nurturing of the mind. That's prevalent throughout Scripture. In fact, the danger is is that we have a great many in Western culture, all the more, that want a faith that is emotively based. It's based upon emotion. It's based upon feelings. And so they're looking for validation through their feelings. And when you buy into that kind of spirituality, so to speak, this is the destiny of your, of your spiritual life. This is the pattern of your, of your spirit. When you're constantly needing a high and a feeling to validate your faith, you're just on a roller coaster up and down. But if you have a faith that has, been, that, that has come about, that has grown and matured through a nurturing of the mind, here it is. You're steadfast. You're steady. You're consistent. You're not going to be high and low based upon the circumstances of life. In fact, I can find nowhere in the entirety of Scripture, and I'm not above correction on this, but I can find nowhere in the entirety of Scripture a type of faith, a type of commitment to Jesus Christ that he would desire to be rooted in emotions and feelings. Now, the idea is 
If you can nurture the mind, well, the heart will take care. The heart will follow. But it's as old as the wisdom of Solomon himself. Solomon would say in Proverbs 23, 7, For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The Apostle Paul would continue that theme over and over in his writings. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, Paul said, Do not be conformed to this world. Don't think like this world. Don't act like this world. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Believers think differently. We process differently. We filter the things of this world that the world is trying to tell us. We filter it through the Word of God. In his letter to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, he gives a little catalog there of virtuous, uh, virtuous uh, uh, characteristics, those things that are good and right and pure and holy he says let your mind dwell upon these things let your mind dwell upon these things uh, logizomize the word in the greek from which we get our word logarithm it's deliberate prolonged contemplation let your mind dwell upon these things concentrate on these things so that they will be made manifest in your life that's why the lord would say in hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10 i will put my laws in their mind because it's only as you concentrate on these things, think about these things, putting your mind on the things of God, that those things become the actuality, the reality of who you are. Peter would speak of the mind. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, he speaks of minds that are to be alert. There is an alertness about the mind of a Christian about a follower of Christ, it's understanding, being in readiness, being able to give appropriate respond to the things of this world, the circumstances of life that you're going to experience that are going to confront you. Be of an alert mind. Gird up the loins of your mind so that you can give an appropriate response. As Isaiah the prophet would even say, these are the kinds of minds that are steadfast. These are the kinds of minds that, that endure and stand the test of time. And as Paul would say to the church at Corinth in his second letter in chapter 3, in verse 5, he says to take captive every thought. Take captive your thoughts. The world is going to try to inundate your head, try to inundate your mind with the way of thinking that is not godly. The world is going to give to you ideas, a change in morals and standards that do not measure up to the design of God, that in fact are in stark contrast to the design of God. The world is going to try to bombard your mind with images. No, you take captive. Paul says, this is your obligation. This is what you are fully capable of, of one who has been born again in Christ Jesus. Take captive the thoughts of your mind. And that's why I would say to the church at Colossae in chapter 3 and verse 2, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, set your mind on higher things. You see, that's who we are, church. We're to set our minds on higher things. You know, the world, we're in a world of least common denominators. We're a world that loves status quo. The world doesn't like, listen, 
Mediocre people don't like high-achieving people. High-achieving people don't like mediocre people. And, the, and most of the world is just down here, the least common denominator, and they want to reach up and pull down you who, who are aspiring to more. It's the proverbial crab trap, always trying to pull down those who are trying. Listen, as followers of Christ, we are a numerator in a world of least common denominators. Aspire to more. How's it done? With, with concentration, setting your mind on things above. You say, well, Bobby, how is this even possible in the busyness of life today? Well, you already know the answer. It's discipline. It's a word that none of us like, but it's a word that works, discipline. Because when you discipline your mind, you reset your priorities. You say, well, Bobby, that's awfully hard. It's, you know, you, we do it every day. We set our minds on something. We choose to major. In, so, in, in college students, they choose a major. They are choosing to say, this is going to be my concentration for, uh, for you know, I, I realize there's some preliminary things, but these last two years, this is my major. This is my, for this season of life, this is what I'm concentrating on. And so we choose what is going to be our concentration. And when we, when we choose to become followers of Jesus Christ, we're saying this is going to be my major in life. From the moment we are born again, from the moment we make that commitment to following after Christ until he calls us home, this is our vocation. This is my major. This is my concentration. And when all of life, under the discipline of Christ's lordship, when all of life is brought under this umbrella of Christ's lordship, well, it'll change your priorities. All of a sudden, these things, if you're really seeking to make this the priority, priority, priority of your life, bringing your life under this umbrella of the lordship of Jesus Christ, when that is really your passion and your pursuit, you know what happens? Is you find out all these things that just draw from you, that, that seek your time and attention and your resources, all these things that we all feel pulling at us. When this, is, when this lordship is really our pursuit, all these things kind of get put in a different perspective we find out this thing over here I thought was so important that's baggage that's dead weight I don't need it anymore this over here that I used to allow to, to get so much time of my day or my week it's really not that important I'm not doing it anymore it's about what are you concentrating on in life what are you setting your mind to you're setting it on something and so as followers of Christ, we're saying, I'm setting my mind on the things of God. This is my vocation. Everything else is ancillary. A second thing Jesus points to in regard to expectations is not just concentration, but also consecration, which may be at the heart of the issue. Notice in verses 14 and 15, and in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, and Isaiah is speaking to his people, and understand that the prophets are always speaking to the people of God. Prophets don't concern themselves with the world. It's the people of God that have the expectation of godly living. So whenever you read the prophets, as we are here reading Isaiah, the prophets always speak to the people of God because they bear the burden of expectation. You shall keep on listening, but shall not understand. And you shall keep on looking, but shall not perceive. 
for the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart and return and I would heal them. Now what he's talking about, the fact that the people of God, that their hearts have become dull, it means that they have failed to properly realize that they are a people that have been consecrated by God. And it's true of us. We are a people as followers of Christ. When we choose to give our lives to Christ and to follow him, follow him, what we are saying is I recognize in this call that I've been consecrated by God. That is, I've been set aside by God. I've been set apart by God for, for something that is to serve and to honor him. And so it's an understanding that because I've been set aside, I've been issued, I've been issued a new wardrobe. Now the call upon my life is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I wear a different uniform now. I'm not to be like, I'm not to be like anyone else. Now that I have the burden of wearing this uniform that, uh, and to represent what it means to be a follower of Christ. Paul would say in Ephesians 6.11, put on the full armor of God. It's what belongs to God. It's not, it's not yours to put on. It, this belongs to God. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Similar language in Romans 13 in verse 12. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let, let's rid ourselves of the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And so what we discern from this is that this life of faith for which we have been consecrated, set aside. It's not, it's not just believing the, the right things. The belief, and I'm going to use the biblical definition of belief because the Western present-day definition of belief is just offering intellectual assent to certain, to, to certain facts, to certain precepts. But when, when we... When we see the idea of believing in Scripture, it's transformational. Belief is only made evident in the doing. So if I truly believe in what God has said regarding the person of Jesus Christ, that in Christ is the fulfillment of his redemptive purposes for all creation, that it's something I put on, it's something I wear, it's something I own. In my life it defines who I am as a person what I'm put I own it it defines me this commitment to Jesus Christ but you got to put it on and wear it Bob Vernon was the former deputy chief of police for the Los Angeles Police Department he once told a story that was captivating he told of a motorcycle officer who one morning as the rays of light were just beginning to come over the horizon and he was beginning his shift, this motorcycle cop was beginning his shift, he saw a gentleman in a truck blow through a red light. He, officer thinking this guy's, you know, he's late for work, he missed the red light and he had in mind he's gonna, he was just going to write him a warning ticket. So early in the morning there was no risk, no traffic. 
What he didn't realize was that the man who blew through the red light, the assailant, had just robbed an all-night convenience store. He sees the motorcycle officer in his rear view. He thinks that's why he's being chased. And he's saying to himself, they're not going to catch me and I'm not going back to prison. The officer pulls the truck over, walks up to the driver's side of the window and says, good morning, sir. May I see your license and your registration? And he never finished that sentence when an arm reached out just inches from his chest, fired two shots, fired a shot, knocked him seven feet back into the, get, into the ditch, the gully. The morning air rang with silence. Shockingly, that officer stood to his feet, pulled out his service revolver, fired two shots into the side of that truck. One went through the open driver's window and blew out the windshield. The other went through the side door, struck the assailant in the leg. He started bleeding out profusely. He then threw the weapon out and surrendered. As you may have guessed, the officer was wearing a bulletproof vest. Hit him right here, but he was wearing a bulletproof vest. It's a vest about three-eighths three of an inch thick. It's made up of dozens of layers of a very strong material called Kevlar. It saved his life. Jump ahead months later, police officer Ray Hicks and his partner go to the apartment of a known drug dealer to issue a search warrant. Four slugs from a shotgun are fired through that door, and one strikes home, hitting Officer Hicks square in the chest. His partner said in his report that Ray his final words were, as he sunk to the floor, was, I've been hit. The coroner estimated that Ray lived less than a minute. Hit major arteries here and brain, blood flow to the brain was cut off immediately. Lived less than a minute. Police officer Ray Hicks was 27 years old. He left behind a wife, three children and a bulletproof vest 30 feet away in the trunk of his car. There is not a police officer in the world that doesn't believe in bulletproof vests. There's not a police officer in this world that doesn't believe that vest saves lives. But it's not enough to believe, is it? You've got to put it on. You've got to wear it. You've got to wear it when it's hot. You've got to wear it when it's uncomfortable. You've got to wear it at those times when it's inconvenient and when you don't really want to. Faith is no different. It's one thing to believe some things about the faith, it's a whole nother thing to put it on and to wear it and to be a life that is consecrated under God. Which brings me to a third and final thing about what Jesus expects, not just concentration and, conse and consecration and concentration, but also consummation. 
That is, there, there is a desired end to this life of faith, an expectation, but the one, verse 23, but the one sown with seed on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some 100, some 60, some 30 times as much. So faith rightly understood, faith rightly embraced and practiced. It meets this expectation that, that it bears fruit in life. It, it's, it's productive. It does the very thing that Jesus expects. And if it doesn't, then what is the difference between you who are here and those who are not? What is the difference between those who are here and those who are not? What is the difference between the atheist who would never give a dime to a church and believers who, who don't? What's the difference between the skeptic who would never for a moment consider picking up the Bible and reading it and studying it? And the, and the confessing believer who doesn't? There's no difference at all. There are expectations that we are expected to pursue and to chase after in our life. Jesus expects, as you have hauntingly su suspected, he expects concentration, focus. He expects consecration, that we understand who we are set apart for God. And he expects that our faith is consummated in productivity, a life that bears the fruit of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father, if anything, might we understand that we are a people called by you, set apart for your service. That yes, we are a people saved by grace through faith. But with that wondrous experience of transformation, that with that is the expectation of what it is and how it looks to be a people of God. So, Father, my prayer is, is that as we go forth from this place, a people who call you Lord, Master, and Savior, that, Father, our lives might bear testimony to the world of a living hope, of another way of life can be lived, of a life that can be lived with purpose, meaning, discipline, order, a framework that brings and bears fruit to this world, the fruit of the Spirit, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. And as we stand this morning for dismissal, I want to bring Aaron's blessing to you as he did to the people of God. In Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 24, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you peace. God bless you. You're dismissed.